Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And today we're going to talk a little bit about what happened with this whole COVID vaccine behind the scenes. But before we get there, I want to remind you that there is a website behind this podcast. And that website is called wealthformula.com. And I encourage you to go there to get all sorts of downloads, whether that be books or webinars, and also a place where you can join our accredited investor group if that is of interest to you. Now, I will say that getting back to the story of COVID, it has been two years since the COVID-19 epidemic really became, you know, the major global topic. And I must admit that if you told me back then we'd still be wearing masks and living our lives with COVID-19 precautions every day, I would have never believed you, right? I was one of, I, I certainly underestimated this thing myself for sure. So much about this period in time is extraordinary. It's hard to really appreciate that as we continue to live in the moment as this chapter in history continues to unfold. You know, we we continue to see new variants pop up. You know, certainly nothing too significant since Delta. Uh, we see ongoing restrictions to everyday life. We see, you know, some crazy polarization in opinions about all sorts of things involving mask wearing and vaccines and all that, we're starting to see the economic impact of unprecedented monetary and fiscal stimulus, including inflation rates not seen in over three decades. You know, eventually the events during these years will take up a lot of chapters in a lot of history books. And through the lens of history, we're going to decide what we did right and what we should have done differently. And certainly there were many mistakes made along the way, but we also had a lot of successes. And one of the most underappreciated accomplishments throughout this period was the extraordinarily fast development of an effective vaccine through the combined efforts of the public and private sectors. Now we have a, a sort of an interesting different show today where we're having a New York Times bestselling author Gregory Zuckerman, you know, he wrote this book that provides an inside story to this miraculous success story. It's a book called A Shot to Save the World. And I had a chance to interview him about this book for this podcast. And we're going to have that interview right after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. 
One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Gregory Zuckerman. Greg is a uh, special writer at the Wall Street Journal where he writes about business, economic, and investment topics. He's a three-time winner of the Gerald Loeb Award, the highest honor in business journalism. He regularly appears on such media outlets as CNBC, Fox, MSNBC, and is the author of The Greatest Trade Ever, The Frackers, and The Man Who Solved the Market. The latest book is what we're going to talk about today, which is A Shot to Save the World, The Inside Story of the Life or Death death race for a COVID-19 vaccine. Greg, thank you very much for um, joining the show. Oh, great to be here. So this is a, obviously, this is a fascinating topic, I think, in general for everybody, and especially since we have so many, you know, people in the health field focused uh, on this show already. I guess the question is, first of all, why did you write this book, Greg? What, what, what inspired this? Oh, to me, uh, this is the greatest scientific achievement of modern times. It's the greatest achievement of modern finance as well. We've created vaccines in well under a year. We've never done anything close to that. Uh, historically, the average is 10 years for an effective vaccine. And until last year, it was four years was the record. Yeah. So it's obviously an incredible success story. But let's talk about like what, you know, who were the players and who, if you were telling this as a story, as a dramatic story of people coming together, like who were the players involved and what were some of the main issues that came up? And maybe start with like, you know, the point at which those people started to convene together. Well, my, my book is a dramatic story. It's about the evolution of two different, really three, but two in particular, two primary vaccine approaches that have changed the world, that have saved us, um, that have protected us during this uh, pandemic, this modern-day plague, and that's mRNA and adenovirus. Those are two different approaches that um, skeptics uh, said would never work, um, and people were discouraged from working on an mRNA, uh, as your audience, I'm sure, knows, is a molecule. We all have it in our bodies. It transports instructions from the DNA to the part of the cell where uh, proteins are created. And it's always been sort of the dream of scientists to create mRNA in the lab and to use it for vaccines, for drugs. It can send instructions. If you can tell the body to make any kind of protein, I mean, you, you make the body into a vaccine factory or drug factory, the, the possibilities are endless. But it's always been the kind of thing where people said, yeah, don't waste your time in mRNA. Uh, it's unstable. It gets chopped up so quickly. It can't really make its way into the body, everyone said, into the, to the cells. And yet people persisted. So I write about different characters. Um, there's a gentleman named John Wolf, a scientist 
who was working in Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin in the late 80s, working with children with uh, genetic abnormalities. And he was the first one to really work on it with, with his colleagues and, and mRNA to show that there's a possibility of creating a protein. And yet people ignored him and, and were skeptical. And it was almost like a relay race um, where some scientists made progress, breakthroughs, innovative uh, work, and yet they stumbled and fell and handed the baton to somebody else. So it got to the point where people were ignoring it and dismissing the possibilities of mRNA, but there's a company in Boston and an executive in particular named Stefan Bansell who um, believed. And my book is, uh, a lot of my book is about how they figured it out and how they ended up finding a vaccine to save many of us. So let's talk about a little bit about the mRNA, the background on the mRNA vaccine. You know, as, as many physicians and, and all of us went, who went to medical school, or even really, frankly, you're talking about people in biology and you go through the process of protein synthesis and all that, you recognize mRNA is the step right before pro- protein production in the body. Where was this science before vaccines? Like before, because this didn't come out of nowhere. This was something that was already in somebody's mind about doing so what what was mrna being used for in the labs at that point where were the studies focused well for years again people wanted to use mrna as you know as your audience knows many of them you know the basics um, um biology 101 dna and mrna to uh to proteins so um, people did use, especially this, this company, Moderna, they eventually, they started as called, they were called Moderna Therapeutics. And the idea was to create drugs with mRNAs. And, um, but they weren't really thinking about years. virus. They weren't thinking of necessarily right away. I mean, I don't know the story exactly, but I, as I recall, re- remembering that the, the mRNA therapeutics idea, you know, wasn't predicated entirely on, you know, vaccinations. It was the, the idea was broader than that. And I don't know if it was necessarily thought of as a uh, vaccination, um, you know, as a first. uh, Yeah, that's my, that's what my book is about. It's about how, again, they started off as Moderna therapeutics, the idea being it was going to be for drugs and they spent years on it and they could not make it work. And there's a lot of drama there. There's a lot of frustration, there were people giving up within Moderna. Uh, then a, a young scientist named Eric Wong said, well, guys, it's not working for drugs, um, partly because it's so unstable. It doesn't last long. It, you, yeah, you can get the mRNA into the cell and you can create a protein, but it doesn't last. And then the mRNA gets chopped up. But he made the smart um, conclusion, well, maybe for a vaccine, it's actually going to be more effective. You, you don't need the vaccine. You don't want the vaccine to stick around. Right. That's the whole point. Right. So then they shifted gears, as did this company in BioNTech in Germany. And they made progress in mRNA for vaccines. They were working on cancer vaccines, though. So they were doing a different part of the world. And they work on vaccines for cancer. And that, they never made any progress with that. But they had developed the expertise in mRNA such that when the coronavirus arose, uh, in late 2019, early 2020, they shifted and pivoted and focused on a vaccine for this new virus. So one of the one of the I guess the winners in that this race ultimately was a company called Moderna, uh, which we know it's a company that you know it it, it was a fledgling business, right? And uh, talk a little bit about Moderna in particular, how it was uh, running out of money, you know, and how how did they how did they end up coming out on top, so to speak? Yes. Yeah, so at the beginning of 2020, Moderna was a company that people were very suspicious of, especially the CEO. He's not a scientist. He's a Harvard 
MBA, mm-hmm. uh, and he's, he's an engineer. And for years, he raised tens of billions of dollars for this company without any proof of making any progress. They struck out with drugs. They said they were going to make progress with vaccines. People were very skeptical. The stock was down. Um, they were starting to get real suspicions about them because he reminds people a little bit of Elizabeth Holmes. And you don't want to remind people of Elizabeth Holmes in that he's very persuasive. He's a great salesman. But he also doesn't, a little bit secretive. And, and in their defense, they said, well, we had to be secretive because we didn't want our competitors to hear about the progress we we're making. But there were a lot of suspicions about Moderna going into 2020. And yet they believed internally they, had, they were making enough progress. And they were waiting for some big test, some big virus, some, some way to test their expertise in mRNA and vaccines. And they got one pivoted early 2020. They said, you know what? We think there's going to be a pandemic. We think we've got expertise and an ability to do something to create a vaccine. Let's see if we can do it. So how did the the financial problems, I mean, given the fact that the guy already had some, you know, image issues, how did they solve those problems? Well, it was a real problem. And frankly, I don't think we're appreciative enough of um, how it could have gone very differently, this story. Um, Had the virus arose, emerged in 2017, 2018, we weren't ready. Um, and Moderna almost struck out, meaning they developed a vaccine in the first few months of 2020. They tested it in phase ones. It looked good. Um, they were convinced it would, it would be effective, but they didn't have enough money. They were a relatively small company. They didn't have enough money to manufacture the vaccines, and they went everywhere. They went to Merck. They tried to work with Merck. Merck didn't want to work with them. They went to the U.S. government. At that point, the U.S. government was not ready to give them any money. They went to the uh, Gates Foundation. They were striking out left and right, and Within the offices at Moderna, they were pretty despondent. They were very down, discouraged. And then they ended up going to Wall Street. And Wall Street was eager to write a big check. They believed. So investors get some credit there. Uh, Morgan Stanley wrote a check for over a billion dollars to Moderna. And they took that money and they started making those vaccines. So it could have very easily gone another way where Moderna would have taken much longer to, to create the vaccines and you know would have been lives at stake. What do you think? I mean, at that point, and and do you think to your point about it being 2017, 18, I think the the idea is like, you know, even though this guy had an image that image problem, uh, it was worth taking a shot on him or or what? Because I'm I'm curious about that change. You know, that Elizabeth Holmes image. I mean, how, how does that guy raise money? Yeah, well, part of it was those early phase ones. And frankly, the world of science was slow coming around to mRNA, very skeptical. Sure. I mean, the conventional wisdom is that you don't want to work with mRNA. It's unstable. It, it doesn't last long. People have been burned um, wasting time and effort and money working with mRNA over the years. And to Ben Sell's credit, he and his scientists persisted. And he was a difficult guy. He pushed his people really hard. I write about it in my book, Shot to Save the World. They were collapsing in the office. They were hitting their heads at home, collapsing, um, trying to keep up with him. He was a hard-driving, really um, inspirational guy, but also very difficult to work for in some ways. And they kept working on it. So they convinced, so the, the answer is they convinced investors. And investors, there were enough investors who believed. And they made, they made a fortune as a result. I'm, I'm going to take a step back real quick in, in, in the sense that like, okay, so now there's also, of course, the J&J adenovirus, um, the, the, the more traditional virus. Were, were the other players involved in this race that didn't make it? I mean, obviously we hear about Johnson Johnson, Moderna, Pfizer, um, but the other players, were there other players who... I'm just curious why in this particular situation we went to an mRNA 
route? Was it just because, it, is it faster technically to get that more productive? I mean, can you talk about the technical elements that provided advantages for mRNA versus the adenovirus? Sure. Um, so to answer your question, there were other approaches that we haven't seen yet. They haven't succeeded yet. Using more traditional conventional using attenuated um, virus or killed virus. There are COVID-19 drugs in the works. Um, I'm sorry, not drugs, uh, vaccines in the works um, using those traditional va- approaches. But as you say, they're much slower. Whereas mRNA, you just need the sequence. You can move quickly. And that's one reason um, Tony Fauci and NIH, they backed the mRNA approach years ago. So uh, to answer your question, yeah, mRNA is much faster. But the, the real question is, why weren't the vaccine giants involved? So like Merck, I mean, Merck is the vaccine yeah. heavyweight. They they produce MMR vaccines, we all know, um, mm-hmm. you know, measles, mumps, rubella, um, GSK, Sanofi, those are the vaccine giants. And yet they're not um, in the race, or at least they've been trailing. And part of the reason is um, people like Merck, they thought about chasing a vaccine and put a little work into it, but there was a, there was a split. I write about it in the book. There was an internal split within Merck. And some people said, hey, this virus is going to dissipate. A lot of people had wasted time and money chasing a SARS-1, the first SARS vaccine, a vaccine from MERS, Zika. You can go on and on. People have been burned creating vaccines to the point where Merck and some others said, you know what, let's wait to see. Let's not go all out. They tried a little bit and it just didn't really work out. Um, It's also the case that GSK and Sanofi bet on a different approach, the protein subunit approach, which isn't a bad approach. I think there's going to be a good vaccine coming from them and from a company called Novavax, which will be very effective, but we don't really need it at this point. Probably elsewhere in the world, we will. Um, but the last point is it's important to remember that vaccines are not a sexy business, or at least yeah. they never were. Right. Um, historically, big pharma companies didn't really want to be in vaccine uh, business. It takes a while. It often is a waste of, of time and money. And you know, you'd rather be in the drug business, a statin you give, you give every day and then a vaccine every once in a while. So that's, those are all the reasons I would argue why upstarts, they're the upstarts that have saved our lives. And with this, with this in COVID, we're talking Moderna, we're talking BioNTech, this Novavax company. It's not the, the usual uh, suspects. So, you know, we're in a, a very unusual time, obviously, where uh, there was also a really unprecedented public-private plan called the Operation Warp Speed how did that all work? How did that all help get this done? So Operation Warp Speed was very helpful. It arose uh, in sort of the late spring, early summer of 2020, and it helped in regard to writing big checks. Um, it wasn't perfect. Their first bet was on the Oxford uh, AstraZeneca approach. And while that vaccine is effective uh, and it's being used in Europe and around the world and it's cheap and doesn't have to be kept in cold storage. Um, it's not as effective as the mRNA approaches or the J and J. So we don't need it here in the United States. And even though, we, again, we bought, we gave them a big check. That was the first money that came from operation warp speed. We didn't need that in the end, but they basically bet on uh, six, three approaches, uh, mRNA, adenovirus, and the protein subunit, three six, and, and six companies, two in each. And it was like a portfolio approach. And it was smart on the part of, Operation Warp Speed. They figured they'd get some home runs and some strikeouts, and that's exactly what happened. And they gave money, and they also gave uh, resources. They helped um, in terms of supplies, getting the pieces that were needed for manufacturing. Sometimes it was remember it was a difficult time in the summer of 2020, transporting things. So they helped in that regard as well. Um, Pfizer actually didn't take money, right? And and I'm I'm curious, uh, what's the story behind that? 
They did and they didn't. They did not take money from Operation Warp Speed to develop their vaccine, which they didn't really develop. It was, it was BioNTech, but they worked with them and they tested it, et cetera. But they did take money in terms of selling um, their vaccine ahead of time, which was helpful, having those billions. And they did that. It was smart on their part. They didn't need the money. And they thought that the bureaucracy of working with the government would slow them down. And frankly, as, as I write in my book, it did slow Moderna down a little bit. So it helped. At one point, Moderna was in the lead. And uh, Pfizer and BioNTech passed them in the race for a COVID-19 vaccine. I write my book partly because the government slowed Moderna down a little bit. Yeah. So so there wasn't it wasn't because they felt like, you know, they would be controlled by the government money, per se. It was just there was concern about that. They wanted to be independent. Yeah. 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 So there's another issue I know that you talk a little bit about, which is the Moderna and the NIH now fighting over this patent. How, uh, yeah. What's going on there? Maybe you can explain that a little bit. Complicated science, as your audience will know, uh, is not clear cut often. Um, there aren't eureka moments that one person, ha- one person has in a, in a lab kind of thing. So there were a lot of contributors to this vaccine and this approach. So basically, um, there were the two elements to this dispute. Um, when the virus arose in early 2020, there was the sequence that was um, coming available, you take that sequence, you create the mRNA molecule, and specifically what you're focused on is the spike protein, and you want to stabilize the spike protein, and there's some scientists, and there's some science from years ago, like in 2016, 2017, um, that was responsible for the innovation of, of keeping it, um, there's a way to, to in, in insert these two prolines that stabilize the spike protein, and that was created in part by the NIH, in part by academics, and, and it's not clear who gets credit. And then there's also just the issue of in early 2020, the work and NIH said they sent the sequence to Moderna and they said, here we go, let's do the vaccine. And Moderna says, and I kind of believe them, well, we were doing that work anyway. So yes, thank you for sending it to us, but we already had done that work. So then who gets the credit? Who gets the patent? It's subject of dispute. I mean, I'd like to think they could all share. I mean, they all worked on it and and for years, Moderna worked with NIH. So for them to be fighting about it now, and Moderna is making a fortune. So I don't think it's a terrible idea to, to share it. But I understand why Moderna is a little bit resistant. They say, hey, we did the bulk of this work here. Yeah. When you look back at the story, and obviously, you know, it's, uh, you know, aptly described as an American success story you talk about. Um, when you look back at that, what do you think if you you know, for the next potential pandemic, what lessons can we take away and maybe learn from history and apply to the next, you know, crisis if we have one? Well, one is how smoothless it was, the, the ability, the, the um, working relationship between private and public sectors. I mean, never before have we been able to do all these things simultaneously, do phase ones, phase twos, phase threes, that we, we didn't cut corners anywhere in that regard, but we simultaneously, we developed the vaccines while we were manufacturing them and testing them. I mean, that's never before been done. And it was never before been done because it's too expensive. Why would you start manufacturing a vaccine before it's approved or even, or even authorized? And yet they did it at this time and we did it because we had the money for it. So again, Operation Warp Speed wrote these big checks and allowed companies to start manufacturing well before they were authorized. Can we do that in the future? Yeah, we can. We have to have the willpower and the resources to be able to, to do that. So that's one key lesson. Obviously, another key lesson is to trust the science, um, something we're still learning, sadly, in this country. Um, too often, we've been skeptical. Everybody is um, 
trusting their brother-in-law as opposed to their physician. Um, so it saddens the researchers I talked to who worked on work on this these vaccines. But um, that's a huge lesson that we've yet to learn. Right, right. Um, the book is uh, A Shot to Save the World, The Inside Story of the Life or Death Race for a COVID-19 Vaccine. Uh, you can find this book everywhere. Obviously, it's doing very well. And uh, Greg, thank you very much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast today. Great to be here. Thanks and for the invitation. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. I know it was a little different than you know, the usual personal finance stuff. But, you know, ultimately all of this stuff, it's nice to kind of talk about what else is going on in the world once in a while. And I always try to think about it in terms of what kinds of things might be interesting to you, knowing who you are as my listener. But, you know, next week we'll start getting back uh, to some personal finance. We'll do some Ask Buck soon and, uh, you know, really get into the nitty gritty as we head into the holiday seasons. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.